This is Belt and Beyond, a deeper dive into Nigeria's elections with Timisha Leye and Toby Lawson. Good day, everyone. This is Timmy Chalair, and uh, I'm with Toby Lawson. This podcast, which is essentially a limited edition in the run-up to Nigeria's 2023 elections, particularly the presidential one, is called Ballots and Beyond. What we're trying to do is, daily until the election, create a kind of forum for discussion in a non-partisan way, talk about the large issues that are facing Nigerians as they prepare to cast their ballots. The format generally is that we will find a headline topic for the day, and sometimes it will be an urgent matter, um, fuel scarcity, or let's say a demonetization and the cash shortage, and we will have a discussion about the things that we think are urgent in terms of public policy, and what is actually going on in the country about that particular issue. And uh, sometimes with guests, it can be a wider ranging issue. We're just basically trying to foment a number of conversations around Nigeria's upcoming election. Toby, I don't know if you have any. I'm glad to be doing this with you. It's going to be fun. Yeah. So <laughs> today we are talking about, and I don't know if it's quite fair to call it a demonetization, because I don't believe that's how the central bank themselves explained it. But what is functionally the demonetization that has happened in Nigeria over the last month or so? It was announced at the end of last year, but it has reached an acute and critical pain point right now to the point where humongous queues at ATMs. And so there are ways that I want to discuss it. I know you have thought about it in the context of the India example. I don't even really know if it's the same, even in its aims. Um, the constraints that maybe have caused the problems that we have. And then most particularly for me, what is relevant in this is how a simple cash exchange exercise has led to so much violence and stress and economic damage in the country. Yeah, so it's kind of funny because this is a self-made crisis, if there ever was one. And I think it has Nigeria written all over it, in a way. Whatever their ostensible reasons are, when you say a self-made crisis, did they have to do this in any way, shape, or form? Like, was there an urgent problem, in your opinion, that they were solving? Was something wrong? So, yeah, that's a great question. And I do not think so, especially given the timing. What we have seen with the execution, and I know you're going to talk about that, what we have seen with the execution is that this was not really thought through. The timing is weird, to say the least, right? And I think that's why some politicians, especially from the ruling party, are crying foul. You uh, don't think it's deliberate? Like, you know, giving like the kind of benefit of the doubt, is it possible that in their minds, what they're doing, they think this is the right thing? I would pull a few things from the CBN governor directly when this policy was announced. He said that 80% of cash in circulation is outside the banks. 
he talked about the scarcity of clean notes, that the notes in circulation are dirty. He talked about the risk of counterfeiting. Nigeria has not changed our notes in over 20 years, and they are so easy to counterfeit. That's the whole black money argument, if we want to draw on the India example. So from the press conference by the CBN governor, Godwin Mayfield, those were what you could point to as the concrete reasons given for this. But adjoining that, I would also point to press appearances by deputy governors of the central bank for currency operations and monetary policy, who extended those reasons a bit by talking about inflation and the fact that there's too much Naira in circulation. Only 20% of the Naira in circulation are in bank votes and the rest are in people's houses, in quotes. So, and this is a good policy because it will help curb inflation, as you know, which is double digits. And we can seem to have monetary policy theme, you know, inflation. Yeah. But as this goes on, so many reasons, particularly this vote buying issue, became a thing. I don't recall any CBN official. That's to answer your question directly. I do not think there's any CBN official on record saying that this exercise is to stop the influence of cash or money on the election. But it seemed to have become the story, right? So I guess maybe that is where we should start, which is that what exactly is the role of the CBN in the elections? And it seemed to have become the center stage and <laughs> the Indian example, the people drawing that parallel makes it a bit strange to me for two reasons. It's not coming from the CBN itself. Like, it would be different if the CBN had said, oh, yeah, this happened in India. Don't worry. This is the reason we are doing it. And from the Indian experience, these were the positive results. And this is what to expect from this exercise. That's different. You know, when the pain from this started materializing in the real economy, that's when the whole Indian example came up. And I'd like to point out to people of influence who like to use this example is, <laughs> it's kind of one of the things I find strange about Nigeria, is that we like to compare ourselves to some very bad example. If you had pointed out something quite overwhelmingly positive that India did, where Nigeria is failing. Maybe you talk about exports, you know, or some industrial policy or maybe power, you know. We like to talk about the complexity of Nigeria and how Nigeria is different. But for a policy that is clearly failing, we so easily find it convenient to then draw on these bad examples as compared to so what they did it in India. The whole world saw what happened in India. And over the last couple of days, obviously in preparation for this, I have looked carefully, and I dare challenge anybody on this, I have looked carefully at some of the most comprehensive studies that were done 
on the Indian experience. And it's not a policy that had an overwhelmingly positive result, right? The government projected a tax increase of 33% before demonetization. Taxes only improved by about 14%. Yes. Yes, there was some increased interest in digital banking, you know. I think those are the two major positive results we can associate with the Indian episode. All the other things like stopping terrorism, black money, everything pretty much went back to the way it was, you know, after a couple of months. And, and that, that's the point about these kind of fiat shocks, right? Which is, if you think about it, you know, as you pointed out, India State with five objectives, right? Fighting corruption, restraining the flows of black money, controlling inflation, and stop uh, the illegal flow of money as regards tax evasion and thus increasing tax revenue. The truth is, I almost feel with the Nigerian example that the Indian example is a little bit of a distraction. Because the truth is that our own government, or at least our own officials, uh, monetary officials, have stated different aims. But whatever it was that they thought that they were trying to do, if we look at what is actually happening, it is an economic disaster. It has shuttered the economy, not to a halt, but substantially slowed it. And so I just wonder, whatever you think you're doing, what you're doing is messing up, then can it be justified in any way, shape or form? But if you look at their stated aims, it's not helping inflation, right? Because a classic example is there's a lady who used to sell food for 1,000 naira. She now sells that food for 1,200 naira because she has to factor in POS charges when she is taking the money that you give her by the POS. But she sells it for 1,000 naira if you pay in cash, one, two, if you pay via POS, because she has to think about the cost of getting cash to resupply herself. How is that fighting inflation? Whatever your stated aims are here, you are doing precisely the opposite thing that you thought you were doing. You're forcing a bunch of money into the money supply that is now only covering transaction costs. Previously, you just go and buy fuel, et cetera. Now that cash is so scarce, NIB's infrastructure has essentially crippled or melted down underneath the pressure that it's seeing. Even the old notes that were supposedly so abundant are now scarce. So now attractive premium. I really do believe that implementation is such a crucial question when it comes to these things that you cannot divorce it from whatever the policy aims are or were supposed to be. It is the crucial thing. And that in that particular respect, this policy has been an F up. Whatever their stated aims are, and I actually don't take this at face value, I think that they're being disingenuous. And the unintended consequences have been extremely, extremely severe. And we have seen lives lost. We've seen students assault army officers at the University of Bumin. We've seen army officers come back and destroy property and assault innocent students. We've seen people essentially being lynched at ATM machines. 
not only is it bad policy, but there seems to be like a real human cost. There should be in a rational system a reckoning one way or another. As much as we are focused on the fact of the election, we have to think about the fact that after that, someone should really look and be like, what actually happened? Who was beaten? Who died? And what are the consequences for instituting a policy that resulted in a great deal of human suffering and yeah. accomplished none of its aims? So three things I'll just like to point out, and I'm going to frame them in form of questions to you. Of course, I also have my speculative answers. The first point, you know, we're talking about ballots and beyond, right? The first point I'll make is it is now accepted street wisdom and even in the media that this has to do with the elections and that Corbyn boot buying that you would see even important and educated people defend this on that basis. So the question then is what exactly is the role of the CBN in elections and is it right for this kind of meddling because what I find particularly curious is that if the vote buying story has like taken form and it's become front and center to this story, the CBN should actually communicate clearly to either deny or confirm that. It hasn't done so. So the question then is, why is the CBN meddling in the election in this form? And what are the implications? The second issue, talking about beyond the election, is that this has, in effect, made the CBN political, you know, an institution that we agree best functions without political interference has become political because if the speculative intended target of this policy becomes president, right, there will be some form of political retribution. We all know that the CBN is not going to be the same, for better or worse. So the CBN is basically creating a political crisis and... I don't know, it's taking a future bet on that. So I think we should look at the, the implications of that. How would you react to those two things? I think many people would agree is that nowhere within the central bank of Nigeria's mandate is enforcing free and fair elections. But as we've talked about, there's a certain pragmatism within Nigeria, particularly within Nigerian political elites, which is that let's not get too bogged down in the niceties of things, right? If this CBN policy really will work to get us free and fair elections, let's not worry too much about how it works or the statutes invoked. What we're trying to solve for that's the most important thing is free and fair elections. My contention there is that not only has this not been effective in achieving that aim, it has actually been detrimental. The people who have the easiest access to large amounts of cash now, right, are the very politicians that you were hoping to try and stop buying votes 
So if you're trying to disincentivize people from selling their votes for 5,000 naira in cash, why would you make it so hard for ordinary people to actually access cash? Their incentives to do so. Again, I, I hate making these kind of anecdotal ad hoc arguments, but the incentive for someone who can barely access even the money that they have to sell their vote for cash is vastly increased by restricting the cash supply that is available to ordinary citizens. Trust me, beggars believe the idea that any of the major four candidates would have any trouble accessing as much cash as they need. They know people in the banks and they know people in the CBM. These are people who are all ex-governors, all ex-vice presidents. They're not going to have trouble accessing cash. So you've actually created a desperation situation in which some people who might have otherwise felt neutral feel obliged to sell their votes for a little bit of cash. And then when it comes to the politicization of the central bank, I mean, of course, that is very true. And the central bank governor has five-year terms. He's partly through his second five-year term in a sense to insulate them from politics. But the idea that in any way their actions could be overlooked by an incoming administration, unless that administration in some way had colluded with them, is ludicrous. Like, we're going to end up in a real political maelstrom. Another point I'll raise, and I want you to comment on, is, I don't know, if we, like, turn a blind eye to the incentive problem, for a brief second, the sheer incompetence of the way we do policy sometimes quite literally baffles me. And you hear this from CBN officials right around October when this was proposed, that the fact that those Naira in circulation, 80% that is in the air and not sitting in bank vaults, are just literally being stashed in people's bedrooms is baffling to me because there was a World Bank report last year that estimated the scale of the informal economy relative to the whole economy at about 80%. And I would have speculated that a central bank should know the nature of the economy, the actual demand for cash in the economy before proceeding to implement such a policy. Secondly, if you want to go cashless, you know, we are so big on this cashless policy. I would also have speculated that if you want more formalization in the economy, you want more businesses to become more formal, more visible. So maybe makes them more taxable. I would imagine you go with incentives, right? You go with carrots rather than sticks. You offer benefits. Yeah, you change the interest rate. Isn't that what modern orthodoxy and monetary policy would say, which is you incentivize people to put their money into the formal system, and particularly your formal system, by giving them an increased incentive to do so, which is an interest rate. Yeah. So then my question would be that what exactly is wrong with the way we do policy that makes it look, at least to me, so incompetent? Like, what's going on? 
it has to be corrupt incompetence. It just has to be. We talked about some of the stated aims, and there just seems to be a myriad ways of achieving these particular objectives without creating this level of functional chaos. Fuel scarcity is a real, actual, like you can see the trucks drive up and there's a real problem and we're buying it from somewhere else. This is an entirely self-created fiasco. Why would you take in two point something trillion in cash deposits when you know that your ability to replace that cash because there is a government-owned company means the money and you know that it cannot produce more than 200 billion? within the stated time period. Like, you know how fast your machines run, you know their capability. You have designed a scarcity problem to play hanky-panky. There just can't be any other reason. <laughs> An update on that is that this morning, the Supreme Court gave a ruling suspending the deadline for the currency ruling on a case brought by Cardinal State, Kogi State, and Zamfara State. And of course, they set a future hearing date of February 15th. That's the update on that. So let's let's bring it back to the elections. Most of the leading presidential candidates have commented on this at one point or the other. Tinobu went on a form of tirade in Abeokuta, implying that some forces are trying to score the elections. I know the Cardinal State Governor Nasir Orofai has corroborated same claims and some other people. And of course, PDP, Peter Obi of Labour Party have also reacted in different ways, seeming to indicate that, oh yeah, well, let this work. Don't try to buy the election, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I want to bring up two seemingly philosophical points relating to that, which is what exactly about vote buying or the phenomenon of vote buying? Because, you know, when you do a policy, one standard heuristic that policymakers resort to is to do basic cost-benefit analysis, right? So, like, when we look at the phenomenon of vote buying and how we say it interferes with the election and the outcome and maybe generally the political landscape in the country, um, what is wrong with vote buying? What makes it so terrible that we had to resort to this? And, you know, a related point is, who exactly are you making policy for if the policy has such a disastrous cost on the people, but you are persisting? It has to be for a very larger stratospheric goal that you're shooting for. Otherwise, the costs are just not worth it. So I guess that sort of relates to the first point is, is vote buying really what is wrong with elections in Nigeria? And is this the best way? Can't we have INEC or have the National Assembly pass a campaign finance law and enforce that? Actually, you know what? I don't even think that INEC needs an additional law. Their statutory authority is relatively broad. When you ask what is wrong with vote buying, you know that I have a relatively controversial libertarian view of it, which is if you want to sell your vote, then 
is yours to sell. I think it is not prudent to sell your book, right? And I think that many, many, many millions of Nigerians agree with me, which is like the days where stomach infrastructure made any kind of substantial impact upon one's life, as opposed to the suffering and suffering that you really see from poor governments. I really, truly think that in like a Pavlovian way, we have seen over the last decade or so that it isn't really worth it selling your boat because you see how in the end it will come and redound upon you, redound upon your children, redound upon your savings, your property prices, your security. Like it's funny that if we target this boat buying thing to this particular election, we're trying to solve for yesterday's problem. Like we're trying to solve for a problem that maybe was prevalent in 2015 or 2011 in 2023. It's not that much of an issue, except it's been created as an issue because cash is now so constrained just in the run up to the election that people need it so badly that they are now willing to sell their votes. And the other thing I'll say with Nigerian politics is I don't think anyone minds vote buying so long as they feel that the people are selling their votes to the right person. And that's part of the general hypocrisy that everyone has, right? Quanqueso people believe vote buying is bad unless they're just giving you a gift and your Quanqueso voters. Kind of the same with all the other candidates, which is the supporters of each person think that it's okay to sell your vote as long as you're not selling it to one of their opponents or one of their competitors or someone else. And so there's a certain extent to which this is an entirely sham and flim-flam argument, right? Which is the prevalence of wood buying has almost nothing to do with the level of currency that is available in the country. It really is just not a thing. Because let's say that you were an extremely successful politician who had a large amount of stashed up. People will accept the old notes, right? You don't even need to put them through the bank, but then you probably also have access to the new notes. It's not like they've seized the old currency. And as we've seen, you know, the courts always in Nigeria intervene in the strangest fashions, but they always intervene at the last minute and create confusing rulings and then postpone a real ruling until later. So this is why we don't even really know who's in charge in offshore states. Um, long and short is no one opposes vote buying unless it's selling your vote to someone who is not their candidate. Let's try and close this out on a couple of notes. But before I get to that, I want to quickly make a point on, shall I call it state capture? And I would like a reaction on that. The CBN, and this is my opinion, for the record, is throwing the banks under the bus, right? They are blaming them for hoarding cash. We've seen videos of new notes and bank vaults, and of course, Nigerians are buying it. We're seeing bank staffs, in some cases, bank managers being arrested and saying that- Again, arrested for what? Like what particular statues? I don't know, hoarding money. You know how we say these things now, like 
oh, it is not the government that is doing us. Nigerians, we are the problem for ourselves. Okay. How can we all go yes. up by okay. 20 naira and you raise price by 15 naira? Are you not greedy? You know, that kind of thing. So it's the same yeah, sentiment. I, I, but I always understand that argument, but I'm always trying to understand that beyond the fact that it feels fundamentally unfair, right? It feels as if they're using their position to gouge or make excess profits. Is there a particular statute that makes it a criminal case? It's refusing to load your ATM machines with new nodes and reserving them for your preferred customers. I understand why that feels very unfair. But then it's a lot of like what I talked about, or at least I was trying to focus on a little bit at the beginning, which is this incident of violence, right? Which is lawlessness created by artificial scarcities, where like Naira is scarce. And so that justifies me being in a bank burning a bank branch down. And you know, you kind of create these exigent situations and law where what I would expect is that CBN would probably use its own discretion to say, okay, you know what we're going to do? We caught you doing this, right? We're now not going to allocate you any more new Naira. Being arrested by DSS, what did they have to do with it? What was the particular crime? Where is the statute? Where's the public prosecutor? Where's the finding of fact? Yeah. And because the situation is so acute, we justify everything that the government now does in order to solve, quote unquote, a problem that they created. But cash is so scarce that, you know, they should go and round up all the iPod people and whoever is holding cash and whatever it's occur. And it is this question where um, a lot of the policies that they create, create the very crises that allow them to act with impunity. So, yeah, and I think that brings me to my point, which is something I think you said a couple of years ago on Twitter that I recall I disagree with you about, which I find relevant in this case, which is the fact that the quote-unquote business elites, do you think they push back enough on regulatory overreach? You know, because I recall your particular phrase at the time was that they are also victims because they have fiduciary duties and all that. Because I recall during NSAS when CBN was, I mean, blocking people's accounts left, right and centers, the banks were happy to comply. Maybe they are bounded by that by law, but it is their customers that have been affected. It is their business you know, that will be affected at the end of the day. So to what extent do you think businesses should try and push back, particularly ensuring that the regulator stick to what the law says and what its duties are? Because like you said, it's not a crime, but the CBN can come to your vote and say, without any evidence that you're hoarding and say that you're hoarding, and then EFCC officials are hauling you out of the building in handcuffs. I know, right? And so when you think about that, this is always the point that you think about when you think about government tyranny or government overreach, right? Um, There's this book, it's called Thinking Strategically, right? And I just remember reading it some years ago. And there's uh, it it outlines a number of problems, including game theory one of which is called belling the cat, right? 
So a hundred mice can take a cat down, no problem, right? But who's going to be the first? But any cat can take down a mouse with no problem. It can even take down two, right? It requires a concerted effort from all of them. Who's going to be the first mover? And who is willing to be the one in 20 that is squished out of existence for the betterment of all? And this is why tyranny works, right? Particularly government tyranny, which is who is willing to be the first person to defy, openly defy, basically on a statutory basis, and maybe even go to court over it, the CBN's arbitrary and, let's be frankly honest, particularly when you look at this question of like how they take deposits with the CBN and the CBN lends those out to people, even though these are supposed to be regulatory reserves, who is the first person who's going to be able to or willing to speak up and risk their license being suspended? That's why I call them victims, right? And you see it, like, you know, I, I see it in my own industry. So you see it with NERC licensing, you see it with NMDPR, what we used to call DPR, the Petroleum Licensing Authorities, right? With NMPC, with the Ministry of Petroleum. Do you remember when they essentially unilaterally revoked the back and forth, the ping pong, with ADAX's onshore production chain yeah, contract? Yeah. Right? You wake up one day, and in essence, the equity value of your entire company can be wiped out because you did something that irritated or otherwise defied the regulator. And you are usually a very small owner of the company, but honestly, you know, what bank CEO owns more than two or three percent of their thing? They have shareholders, they have owners who are sitting somewhere expecting their dividend and would tell you that it's your job to preserve my capital and my wealth not your job to have public policy aims or fight against whatever it is that the government is doing at the risk of the equity capital of this business. Um, what we've created is a situation where often a business is not its assets or not its structure, not its built infrastructure. A business is often just the license. And the revocation of the license removes the equity value of the business. Hmm. I get you. It's a collective action problem. I get you. And it doesn't even make any sense for the head of GT or the head of Sterling to stick their neck out in order to defy what are clearly some illegal DSS, CBN, third world government actions. Because in a sense, what's their own? I would say that regulators are always clever enough in Nigeria in particular when they get on these things. If they leave enough space that there's a personal boon to whoever is in charge of the company. So like every time they institute some silly new rule that basically punishes the company, they leave enough space for internal corporate corruption that you yourself kind of like leave it alone because, you know, as terrible as the new rule is, you probably can make a little bit of money personally for yourself. Exactly my point on state capture. It's more efficient to just capture the regulator or whatever on your side 
than to push back. It's also more efficient for the regulator to capture you as the particular executive in charge of this thing, right? I see your point. So, I mean, briefly before we close this out, how do you see this playing out? We know that unless the FG and the CBN decide to openly defy the Supreme Court, we know there's going to be an extension beyond February 10. So, but how do you see this playing out? So, so we're now playing in functionally uncharted territory, which is that they've been playing around with the naira value of the dollar for a long time. And what they have now done is that they have created parallel markets in fiat currency that they control. And I really think, and this is, again, why I keep coming back to this question of instability and violence, right? It's not just a question of like, what's my currency worth against the dollar or the renminbi or the yuan or the yen or the euro, right? Once you create a sufficient cash shortage within your own economy, that you now have shortages in parallel rates, you kind of undermine the question of what it means to be a sovereign country. Whatever one thinks about you know, ethnic divisions or regional divisions within Nigeria, whether the guy in IPOB believes that I legitimately live within the same country that he does, and whether someone right up at the border in Makadi or Katina or Taraba, one of the things that we've always had is we had the functionally the same currency and in a sense the same access to it. Once you undermine that, you kind of have struck a blow at the fundamentals of what it means to be. Nigeria and Nigeria. You're hearing stories, again, these are anecdotal stories, but of how, you know, many people in the northernmost parts of the country, where Nara would be accepted in Niger and CFA would be accepted here, are moving over to the Chad, Mali, Niger, CFA. Once you strike at the fiat currency and the sovereign currency of a country and you erode confidence in it, I just don't see how it doesn't spiral out into increasing circles of violence. I don't see it. Of all the bad things that I could list the central bank as having done over the last few years, right? This one actually seems fundamental blow that is striking at the heart of Nigeria. I just don't see how this is not like top of mind and the most urgent problem that they have encountered as a government. And so when you add that on top of the tinderbox of a contested election, a truly contested election, it just seems like an explosive situation, generally. Mm. Much more so than fuel. I mean, that point brings me to my next point, and we would really like us to close this out, which is personally what meets that's my thing. I'm going with that. I mean, you can go with maybe what lessons we should learn from this particular episode going forward. But for me personally, one myth, and I'm speaking to the intended audience of the show, the average Nigerian, in quote. One myth I would like to see die, which is something we should learn, is this whole belief in the sanctity of the Naira. I know it's important for sovereign purposes, but politicians have been using the exchange rate. The Naira traded at X 20 years ago and now as some kind of focal point 
or policy. What this episode showed is that anything can be money as long as it's a medium of exchange uh, unit of account and the store of value. So the CFA example clearly demonstrates. I saw the pictures from Sokoto where traders were using CFA because there was no naira. You know, so anything can be money. What we just need is rational policy making, you know, and not some emotional attachment to whatever we think the value of the naira should be. Like when you think about balance and beyond, right? If you are really thinking that you're going to vote for someone based upon their ability to manipulate the value of the Naira, you know how it is. I have a bridge to nowhere to sell you. The fundamentals, you know, balance of payment, you know, trade deficits, budget deficits, interest rates that determine the value of one currency against another particularly in a situation like Nigeria, where there's no fundamental currency control. Anyone who is trying to tell you that they can control what the value of the Naira will be against a foreign currency's global fiat currency, like they're trying to steal your vote. What is more troubling that we're seeing right now, where with cash, a plate of rice and meat and egg on the street is 1,000 Naira, with POS is 1,200. This latest thing that we're in, this demonetization that we're in, has created a level of uncertainty as far as the fundamentals of Nigeria go that is really dangerous. And I would say, like, this is actually worth all of them really getting into this discussion. They cannot control the value of Naira against the dollar. But the idea that people would be running for serious office that people would be serious policymakers and determining who the central bank authority was, but that they don't feel that they can control what the value of the Naira against the Naira is. That's like the road to oblivion. That's a disaster waiting to happen. You I mean, need to be able to control the value of the Naira against the Naira. How about that? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's where we are now, obviously. So I mean, it's such an artificial constraint, right? It is unforgivable when... Tomatoes and onions and locally grown rice have divergence of value that's currency based. You really are provoking a, an extraordinarily contentious issue, right? Which is suddenly we're now thinking about what are the narrow liabilities that they've racked up from the central bank, from the bond markets. We usually think of our exchange rate position, our external liabilities. Once you start down this thing where one starts to question the internal value of a currency, that's how you end up in Zimbabwe, that's how you end up in Venezuela. When to get 5,000 Naira in cash, you have to spend 7,000 Naira at the PS operator. What is 5,000 Naira actually worth and what is 7,000 Naira actually worth? The 7,000 Naira actually now just worth 5,000. You know, we're talking balance and beyond. This is not what the election should have been about. But this has been introduced in such a dramatic way that I cannot imagine anybody coming in to take on these jobs leading the federal government who cannot see this as the front and center issue with which they have to deal. It's impossible to me. I recall how baffled a lot of people are that you are spending Naira to buy Naira. I hope the relevant people are listening and I hope common sense prevails. 
common sense can't prevail. You can't put this genie back in the bottle as easily as you unleashed it. Yeah, true. But so you can't see him risky or side But let's say suddenly every ATM in the country was full and you could take out 20,000 naira, no problem, right? So then something that people are used to having work or having be reliable or at least predictable ceases to operate properly. It is almost impossible to easily restore public confidence in those things. Because what people are doing with the new Naira notes is, you said you didn't want people hoarding cash in their houses, right? What they're doing is queuing up and taking out the maximum of the new Naira notes that they can in order to hoard it against cash shortages. So I know someone that she's been taking out 20K every day. You have created the very problem that you are allegedly trying to fix. Well, we'll see what happens. So I guess we can close this. Any final thoughts? None. Thank you for listening. This is Ballots and Beyond, where we take a deeper dive into the upcoming elections in Nigeria. And in subsequent episodes, we are going to be talking to many, many brilliant guests and experts to look at the issues surrounding the elections and beyond that. Thank you, Timmy. I'll see you tomorrow. On the next episode of Ballots and Beyond, we'll be talking to Andrew Nevin partner and chief economist of PricewaterhouseCoopers on the possible economic challenges that will be facing Nigeria's next government. You don't want to miss that one. Until then, goodbye for now.